I'm a writer. I love writers and I coach writers. So it makes sense that I'd interview writers from all areas, blogging, TV, film, songwriting, podcasting, but also the new writers, the first timers that did it, that took the plunge because at one point they heard from someone, you should write a book about that. After 30 years in ministry, Chris Whitley founded One Gen Away to help hungry people in the Nashville area by rescuing food from restaurants, grocery stores, caterers, and farms before it went to waste. They served 3 million meals in 2022 in three states, and Chris is on fire about further expansion in 2023. He also wants to write a book. And we're going to talk about his imposter voices, one many authors can experience, particularly who they'll be when the book is done. And we're going to talk about what he needs to push against that and write anyway. It's so good to have you on the show, Chris. Kim, it's great to be here. What a privilege and honor to be with you. Let's talk about your journey a bit, because your story is going to be interspersed a lot in the book that you eventually write. You were never in the food business Mm-hmm. From what I say, understand, you never had a high school degree. How did how did one gen sprout from your work prior? I was a kid that came up in a low, probably lower middle class family, alcoholic father. So we had struggled many times. You know, I found out later in life that our grandparents kind of funded us, right? Kept us alive. <laughs> wow. Amazing, right? Those grandparents. Yeah, 13 when my dad basically left home and I had three younger brothers. So I kind of had to become an adult pretty quickly. You felt that responsibility. I guess that's probably where it started. And then Elaine and I got married. I was in the construction business. So I was a drywall finisher of all things. So I'm the one that made the walls look nice in your house. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's a lot of work. I, I've seen that done. It's it's hard work. Yes. Like you said, I had a high school diploma, never went to college. I was really a smart student, but my family life was kind of so dysfunctional. I had a family full of alcoholics, became an alcoholic, undiagnosed, but I knew I was an alcoholic. I was doing drugs when I was 12 and 13 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Can totally relate. Yeah, totally. You know, and and I think a lot of our listeners could probably, your listeners could, could relate to that. In fact, but I always dreamed big. I mean, I always thought there had to be more to life than this. You know, full disclosure, I was raised Catholic. So was my wife. I was barely a C&E Catholic, barely Christmas and Easter. I hardly ever really went to church. So I had a faith, but I really didn't have a faith. I mean, I just, you know what I mean? Right. It was a Sunday. It was just a Sunday. It wasn't like an in the heart faith. Like you were like, like, like you are now so committed to, to faith. Right. I started working around some guys when I got in the drywall business and um, sold women's shoes for a while out of high school. And (laughs) <laughs> really good at that. I know it's really crazy to think about all the things we've done, right? I know, I know. I'm like, man, all the weird stuff. But it, you know, that taught me about sales and interacting with people. And I think your life, if you look back on it, it's just a series of connections and journeys that have taught you hopefully some life lessons and you've learned how to adapt. Then I got in the insurance business in a in a really sartuitous way, actually became really, really successful. But I, I remember early on. You know, I wore suits and I had a, we had this old beat up car. I called it, it had 470 air, four windows down, driving 70 miles an hour. You know, it was the only <laughs> air conditioning it had. And I live right. in St. Louis, so it gets really hot and humid. Eight track, you know, eight on, track. on the radio. Oh, girl, come on. Yes, yes. 
So I'd go to appointments and I, the only reason I really wore my suit coat was because my shirt was so sweaty from the car being so hot. And I'd park my car three or four houses down so people wouldn't see it. But lo and behold, that's, that's really where it all started. And I'm, I started to realize, I guess, because of my upbringing, that I always felt like I had to prove something. So I'm, I have like this all in personality kind of thing. You know, if I'm going to do something, I, I just dive in. Right. And, and honestly, when I became a drywall finisher, I really understood how I learned. I learned from my dad, not what to do. I learned what I shouldn't do. If that makes Interesting. sense. Interesting. That's a great perspective. I mean, especially yeah. for those that are listening that have grown up in families of alcoholics, you know, we become as a child of an alcoholic myself, we become overly self-reliant yeah. uh, sometimes to a fault because we have these very restless hearts. But if we could direct that energy to an area of good and service, wow, like we really can make a huge difference in the world. And like you just said, like if we could learn sort of what not to do <laughs> and then yeah. mo modernize that for ourselves, it's a powerful experience. When you launched One Gen Away, you found out, I believe you said like the same week you had stage three throat cancer. How did you sort of initially work through that news? Yeah, we launched Basically, we launched a little bit in 2010, but in, we had some bad floods in Nashville at that time. We had already moved to Nashville, but it was a very soft launch at best. I honestly had no idea if it would work. <laughs> just It was an idea, you know, so we DBA doing business as under our church in case like our attorney said, well, what if it doesn't work, man? Just do that. It's an easy entry and it's much easier to get a 501c3 if you figure out it does work, you know, so I went, oh, that's a good idea. And so in 13, we realized, hey, this is going to work. We were like quasi successful. We had done, I think, 13 or 14 Saturday mobile pantries. We had started rescuing food out of our car. So we I made this that. big, big leap in November 1st of 2013. We signed our first lease for like 2,000 square feet. And it was like $2,000 a month. But understanding, you know, when you're a startup of anything, you understand that you pay for everything, right? It's out of your pocket. Yeah, you 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 got to pay the bill, right? And for us, it was like beyond our reputation. It was like, we felt like this was a vision God birthed in us. So it's like, now I feel like his reputation's on the line. I'm representing him, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? So it's right, like, right, I mean, right, right. And he's got enough bad attributes from a lot of people, you know, including me. So anyway, so yeah, so that was it. And then December, Elaine noticed this lump on my neck. And anyway, through a few doctor's appointments and even a, a, a needle biopsy that came back negative. And my ENT, thank God, said, I, I really need. So he went into my throat. I think it was like December 27th or something. And on December 31st, and called me and said, it's definitely stage three throat cancer. Oh, my God. That was a huge, a huge rocking point of our world, as you can well imagine. Like I said, just committing to an extra, like another house payment, you know what I mean, <laughs> for a warehouse. We literally went, you know, dropped in half. I think we only did, you know, seven mobile pantries. I did three while I was in treatment. But the farther I got into radiation treatment and chemo, the the more energy I lost. Yeah, of course. Right. Did you think at any point in time you were going to die? I mean, when you first get diagnosed, you do. I mean, it was a real. So the, the ironic thing, they said, you know, you have a, like a 96% success rate. But we had a daughter born with spina bifida. And. She was the 1%. She was the statistic. 
no history. So when you've lived a statistic, statistics don't mean a lot to you. <laughs> they don't. They I, don't. I don't mean to be weird, but it's, you know, 4%, 4% negative rate. Well, we saw the 1% negative rate in our daughter. And so there was always those moments, you know, especially early on when, especially the first two or three weeks when they're like, we're going to get a PET scan because we don't even know how far or where it is in your body. And yeah, we'll schedule that in two weeks. And you're like, two, two weeks. weeks. <laughs> how about two minutes? You know? What am I <laughs> you know, supposed I mean, to do? But yeah, they're like, just yeah. go live your life. You're like, yeah. two weeks. weeks. Yeah. So, uh, uh, okay. so, we, so we, you know, we wrestle with that, but the, the ultimate ending was really, really, really good. Good. We never gave up on the vision. You know, I, I tell people, I said, one of my greatest attributes and probably one of my greatest faults, you know, they're not far from each other. You know what I mean? Right. Your defects are often your best assets, just they've gotten maligned in some way. So you just have to kind of move them back to where they're going to be of service, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, I, I mean, I just, I tell people, I said, I'm just, I'm just not bright enough to know when to quit. I love that. But we need people like you in the world. We need people (laughs) like you that are out there to serve. And you talk a lot about service and and what a world it would be, right? If more people are out trying to outserve each other. How do you see service as a benefit? Like tell say a little bit more about that because I really do feel like that's the golden key to a lot of life happiness. It really is. And, you know, not to get over religious on this, but, you know, there's a great quote where it says, Jesus came not not to be served, but to serve. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, what an example that is. And so I think that's something that that I learned early on in construction. You know, when you start doing jobs for people and work for people that couldn't afford it, and you're like, oh, man, I can do that for you. Don't worry about it. You know, you don't need to pay me. I'm cool. And And you start to realize that we all have needs, wants, and desires. Anybody listening to this, I don't want to dismiss that. That is perfectly normal and natural. I've found over the years, the best way to get my needs, wants, and desires met is to go find someone else's needs, wants, and desires and to step into their world. Right. This really crazy thing happens when you do that. You find that you're getting your answers by serving them. It's like what you speak to them, you're literally speaking to yourself. To your own heart. Yeah, your own heart. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, that's the beauty of service because it gets you outside of your funk and your deal into someone else's. They start to express their gratitude. And then you realize that in the midst of them, you know, in the midst of all they're going through and in the midst of all that they've got going on, I'm helping them and like, wow, in the midst of my, turmoil, I can be an asset to someone else. How special is that? And you forget about your turmoil. You forget about your turmoil. You know, we talk about in church, the testimony, right? You give testimony to another person by either listening to them, by telling them your story or by serving them, you know, and it's really, it's just like a beautiful like process that keeps evolving. You speak about the desire to get to know people, right? And and I imagine through the ministry of food, you are getting to know a lot of people. And, you know, there's also prayer, right? And mm-hmm. so, you know, there's a lot of stigma around prayer, you know, in organized religion, right? So if you want to go do something good, but it, it's with a church, people are like, eh, 
I don't know. Like, you're going to try to make me a Christian with that food. How do you get around that? I can't make anybody do anything. So that's never my heart. But I know that, at least for me, there's always a, if I have one need, there's probably two or three others. Mm -hmm. To make a weird correlation, it's like with medical situations. So when our daughter was diagnosed with spina bifida, when you have a birth defect, there's normally two or three other defects that happen alongside of it. Mm, interesting. Okay. There's a lot of parallels on it because like she had cleft palate and she didn't have cleft lip, but she had cleft palate and she had an extra set of ureters. So there's other malnormities that happen. You know what I mean? So I think it's just kind of how life is, right? If you've got one issue, like if I'm food insecure, that means there probably is a chance you might be transportation insecure or you might be struggling to pay a light bill or you may have you may have gotten into depression because of, you know what I mean? There's just these other things. So the way I, I believe the way we phrase our question and the heart of our question is, is there anything I can pray with you about today? So I'm not trying to win you to something. I'm trying to step into your world and know what do you need me to do to help you? Right? Right. To me, if quote unquote Christians or believers or whatever you want to call them would take that approach understanding that we really have no control over another human being as I barely have control for myself. I don't even have control over myself. So I'm not trying to control or manipulate you, but I just sincerely want to step into your world because I know what a difference it makes when somebody steps into mine right. and wants to walk with me. Right, 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 right. No, that's very, very, very true. You cannot force anybody to be anything that they don't want to be. Again, I mean, obviously, there's terrible situations in this country, like, you know, sex slavery and all that kind of stuff. Yes. People are forced. But in this situation, we're talking about, you know, you're offering some food, you're asking to pray for some other situations in their life that could be tipped off by the fact that they don't have any food. And that's it. It's like, you know, you're bringing them some God. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's not one contingent on the other. Right. They're going to get the food no matter what. Absolutely. You don't ask any questions. You know, it, we talk about, you know, hope, honor, and dignity shared through food. Oh, I love that. That's so powerful. That's our mission statement. Hope, honor, and dignity shared through food. And by engaging you in relationship, because I'm going to see you again, there's a really good chance for most people, if I see them in our line, I'm going to see them again in our line. So now we're going to have a story, right? Now we've started right. chapter one of a book, right? Right. We we met. Chapter two is, hey, what happened about what we just talked about? Yeah. What's the outcome? You start building this beautiful story with this person and you get to hear the highs, the lows, and then they get to hear my highs and lows. You know, they'll ask me how I'm doing. And maybe I'm, I'll, I may say, you know what? I'm having a really good day today. Or I might say, ah, oh, it's a little hard today. You know, I mean, oh, really? I'm sorry, you know. Or, and then it's amazing how many people that we ask that, is there anything we can pray with you about today? You know, and we pray with them and they say, well, can I pray for you now? And I'm like, oh, yeah. How beautiful is that? Yes. <laughs> That's great. A reciprocal prayer. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I think, Kim, the most important thing about serving is whatever preconceived notion you have about another human being engaging in conversation. And at, and when I say that, I mean conversation. I mean, not talking at them. I mean, talking with them. There's a difference, right? Absolutely. So talking with them, you start to realize their wants and desires aren't very much different than yours are. Right. 
Right. Yeah, we put them in this slot like they're so different than us. They're so, you know, we we just come from different worlds. No, we I mean, we might. But down to to our core, you know, they'll say, I don't want my kids to hang out with the wrong people. I don't want my kids to get on drugs. I want my kids to go to college. And you're going, well, I want the same things. <laughs> I want the same thing. I thought you didn't care about, you know what I mean? And it's like, all of a sudden you go, and then your heart starts to melt, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, they're me. <laughs> you know? right, exactly. Because in, in our minds, we create stories about other people without asking enough questions, right? Yes. And then when we finally do get honest and ask the questions and then listen, we are surprised. We are surprised to what we discover. You speak a lot on the topic of, and this is something I think you want to write in your your whole book about mainly, is the topic of obedience. So, you know, we're in our self-will a lot. Many of us are. And we want to know how life's going to play out, right? And it's kind of funny because we don't really know how life is going to play out. And I find some of the best plans happen that I didn't even understand. Yeah, yeah. Tell me like... Where in life did you learn to be obedient, especially in growing this organization? And where in life have you been kind of less obedient? Like tell on yourself. Yeah, actually, actually the same thing, you know, in my, in the first book, the only book I've ever written called The Dirty Church, you know, I tell a story about my hubris and my pride. You know, I, some people felt I was, you know, we call it called to be in the ministry or whatever. I felt this leading that I would be a pastor and lead people. And so that really, really went to my head. And I got really prideful about that. While I was a youth, quote unquote, youth pastor at this large, pretty large church, one of the guys asked me to become an usher. I was like, an usher? Man, I'm like a <laughs> pastor now. I can't. Why would I be an usher? I'm, and I'm, I mean, I, I feel gross telling you this, but I, this is just straight up transparency. It's, Love I it. was literally like that. And it was one of those moments where, I, I mean, there's people always say, you know, well, God talked to me. I mean, there's very few times, probably two times in 30 something years now, 35 years of being what I would call a true follower of Jesus would be that I've like heard, like, I felt like God literally talked to me. You know what I mean? Not, not something inside, like I almost like an audible. And I felt like God was like, who do you think you are? Mm. I need you to do this. And at that moment, he taught me a tremendously, tremendously valuable lesson. So I acquiesced begrudgingly somewhat and told this gentleman, yes, I would become an usher. And I realized that being an usher gave me access to almost everyone in the church. I saw everybody oh, coming through the doors. Love that. <laughs> and then I started hearing all these stories and I was like, wow, no wonder you wanted me to do this. because." How can you become a pastor if you don't understand how to hear people's stories and how to ask questions? Mm. And then I had all these amazing encounters. So, some of the stories I mentioned, not all, but I mean, some of the things that have set me where I am today. And, and one of them was around food, believe it or not, with a guy named Lester Summerall, who's now deceased, but he was a famous global evangelist, the first one to break the bamboo curtain with the gospel. And so he came and spoke at our church. He was like 80 years old. His wife had died. And I was ushering that night. And this guy called me and said, I want you to be with Lester. And so I'm like shadowing him. 
Wow. And so after the, after the service, I'm sitting with him in this, in like a ready room, a green room, you're familiar, you know, with that. And, and he opens up this, this book and it's an ocean liner carrying grain. He goes, I want to show you my baby. And I'm thinking, what's a baby? You're 80 years old. And it was this ocean liner <laughs> carrying grain to China, which was a way for him to feed people that were starving, um, but also share the love of Christ with them. Wow. One gen was not even on my radar, not, you know, not even close. He's a, he's an angel. He was literally, yeah, literally turning on the lights for you upstairs. Exactly. So now I look back. So once again, you talk about obedience. So I was disobedient, said I wasn't going to do it. Then I finally yielded and said, yes. And then it opened to this. What a gift. That step of obedience led to moving to a city where we didn't know anybody without financial support and still saying yes. And taking our daughters who were 15, 13, and 11 from the only home they knew and the only church they knew, the only everything they knew to a place where they know no one, you know? So, I mean, there, there's a couple things, and I don't want to give away too much whenever we write this book, but I'll, I'll say them because I think they're just so important, and hopefully it'll catch people to say, man, I don't care what else he says, but I buy the book just to read that. There's two things about obedience. It always, always, always involves sacrifice. Right. And it always, always, always doesn't look like you think it's going to look. And you have to be okay with that. Wow. So two things you have to understand. It's going to involve sacrifice and you have to trust. No matter how bleak, no matter how bad, no matter how good, you can't ride the emotions of either one. Mm. You just have to understand trust, sacrifice. It's going to involve that. And that's where people, I think, quit and miss it too early. Right. Or they frame it as risk. Right. And people say, well, I'm risk averse. So I don't really think I'm going to go do that. And it's like, it's not really risk. Risk, It's really following a dream. And and I I think so many people are going to relate to that Usher story. I know in Alcoholics Anonymous, nobody's in charge, but they have a secretary at a meeting. And I was the secretary for a big women's meeting. And I remember I was getting all up in my stuff. Like I'm the, I'm the secretary and I think the speakers are, and when it was over, I said to my sponsor, what do I do now? She goes, now you go to the back of the room and you make coffee. And I went, I, I was just the secretary. What do you, I met everybody making coffee. I heard every story because everybody wants coffee at an AA meeting, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody talked to me as a secretary because I was all like up in the front. But as the coffee person, oh my God, I was like, how's your mother? How's your uncle? How is the operation? Yes, yes, yes. So I can totally relate. And it did feel uncomfortable and I did feel all those feelings, but it did teach me about obedience and it was a very spiritual journey, I have to say. And once you've done it, it becomes easier to do. So let's talk about obedience with writing the book, right? So yeah. we know that this is this is a journey. And you've brought up for me an interesting fear that I wanted to point out because so many people experience this. And that's this fear. And, and, and correct me if I got this wrong with you, but yeah. that's this fear that pride is going to come back, that that ego is going to come back. You're going to have this big successful book and you're going to be that guy who no longer there's, there's like, you know, separation between you and the people. And all I have to say is, is that that's an imposter that comes up to protect you when you haven't even written the book yet. Right. So you have so much time to work through that for yourself. 
you got to sort of just start the book first, right? But but tell me more about like why that's coming up. Is it because of the past? I think so. And I think, you know, there's an interesting, another verse in the Bible where it talks about Paul, the apostle, you know, he wrote two thirds of the New Testament. So you talk about an author. Right. Amazing. Oh, yeah. Of the most yeah, incredible. book in the world, right? In the history of the world. And he talks about thing he called a thorn in the flesh, like this thing he, you know, he prayed like God three times, take it away. And he said, and all God said was my grace is sufficient. So to me, this imposter thing's like my thorn in the flesh. It's this compadre that's going to walk with me for the rest of my life. <laughs> right. But I understand now that it's not my adversary. It's your motivator. It's a it's motivator. Motiv- and it a lot- motivates yeah. me now to keep my head on straight. And it allows me to be transparent and tell the story like I told you and be transparent with friends that know me and to know. And I tell them, and I, and I told you this, when people ask how to pray for me, I said, pray I keep the train on the tracks and pray I don't get into pride. So it's like people are aware that I'm aware. Self-awareness is one thing, and it's extremely important, right? I believe self-awareness is tremendously critical. But the problem with self-awareness is you're embarrassed to share it with someone else. And when you don't, self-awareness is not effect, is not the ultimate end-all, be-all tool. It's just self-analysis that goes nowhere. And so you have to share somebody else your, your self-awareness so they understand when they see that, and I don't, they're, they're like, hey, big boy, remember this self-awareness <laughs> thing? You're, you're missing it. There's a blind right. spot, you know, which right. we all have. And so for the book, that's a real deal for me because I, you know, anything like that that I've ever done in my life, even with one gen, you know, we have a lot of exposure. A lot of people know me. I just <laughs> left a place where a guy, you know, one of my board members, the guy said, yeah, he's been in some of our distribution because you have volunteered with you, but you know, you and he he's right. I wouldn't, I didn't remember him. I mean, but I see thousands of people, thousands of people. And, and I'm not exaggerating. And, and it's, but it's just, that that's the reality of my life. So, and you even saying that can make you weird. You know what I mean? It can make no, you think like. But look, you have created something, came from somewhere that was humble. You made yourself into something. You're helping thousands and thousands of people a week. And you're going to write a book about your journey and what you've surmised from all these experiences you've had through this experience on obedience. And you have so much to share that you can't really engage with every single solitary human because you're 10xing everything for a greater message. And that is the plight of the highly successful author on one hand, and also the reward of the highly successful author. And so you, yeah, you're going to be in that for a while, especially if you write a book that really takes off. And, and that's what encourage people that are listening to this, you know, to just, and, and the other thing you and I talked about, this is a marathon, not a sprint. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's just taking a step at a time. Don't get too far out there. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. I, I heard this pastor years ago saying, I thought it was just such a great analogy. So he was from California at our church in St. Louis. He said, look, if I get in my car tonight and I drive, he said, I turn my headlights on. He goes, it's a couple thousand miles from here back to California. He said, but how much roadway do I get to see? He goes, 30 feet. That's it. That's it. He said, the rest of it, I have no idea what's in front of me. And I think you got to look at it like that, right? So just start, you get 30 feet, you take care of that 30 feet, and then you worry about the next 30 feet when it gets here. You know what I mean? That's right. That's right. It's 
That's exactly book writing. That's exactly book writing. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think there's one other fear and, and, and you and I kind of, I, I think in our initial call and even now we're kind of dancing around it. You know, the greatest fear is fear of public speaking. I know, but I would say, I think the greatest fear is the fear of success. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Who am I going to be when I get there? And can I handle it? Can I handle it? And if you're not asking that question, then you got then you got a real problem. But if you're asking that question, you're probably going to be all right. Honestly, you, yeah, you are. You are. And I think we do that with everything, right? It's sort of like mm-hmm. we get closer, like even in a in, in a relationship, right? You're having a romantic relationship. You work through all this stuff. You get through all the conflict, whatever, and everything's going well. And you're like, this could actually be successful. And then you're like, <laughs> oh, my God, that's terrifying. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it, it, you, it, I mean, it's terrifying. You're like, things are going well. Or you build a business and everything starts working. And you're like, oh, my God. Like, because it's that I'll tell you, and, and we're going to end here. But unfortunately, it does go back to alcoholism. It's waiting for the other shoe to drop. Because we don't know what's going to happen, right? We grew mm-hmm. up with that. Who's going to do what, right? What, what yeah. And so self-awareness, we know that. Now we can be obedient to other voices besides the voices of our past. And then we get to grow beautiful things from our resolve and our motivation. It's really yeah. like when you look at it that way, it's an excellent cycle. I've really appreciated you coming on the show today. You've been incredibly illuminating. It's going to help a lot of people. And uh, I'm really looking forward to you to you writing this book. I am too. I'm very excited and um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be on the show. And and thank you for serving so many people. You know, really, it's uh, you're a great example. So thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to You Should Write a Book About That. We love reviews. If you enjoyed our show, head over to your platform of choice to drop a review, share with a friend, or even better, if you want to write a book, be in touch. You can find us at KimOhara.com.